Welcome, my name is Ali, your host for Head On History. Glad you can join me. How are you enjoying the season so far? I know we're like, what, three episodes in or something like that? But let me know what your thoughts are. I'm always interested in hearing uh, what our listeners have to say. If you've been liking it so far, be sure to stop by the podcast app or iTunes and leave a review. I love hearing feedback from my fellow nerds. It gives me fuel for the fire to continue my nerdiness. But also, it's a it's a way for me to know what interests you, what, how I should adjust, things that you want to hear about, etc. So this episode, I'd like to talk about Ramadan. Uh, for the faithful around the world, Ramadan has returned, as it does every year. It's one of the five pillars of Islam that we talked about in the first season. You can go check it out. Um, and it is, uh, you know, one of those moments in, in a Muslim's life that they experience annually. Muslims globally refrain from eating and drinking from sunrise to sunset, uh, and you spend their nights in prayer and some type of reflection or, or meditation. It's it's a one of those months where some people try to rekindle their faith if they do, if they felt like they they are not practicing throughout the year. Uh, for example, uh, many people in my own family, I was raised Muslim, uh, don't practice uh, throughout the year in regards to, to say the five prayers. But during Ramadan, they make a conscious effort to pray the five prayers. Uh, during Ramadan, some people jokingly refer to them as Ramadan Muslims, but it's a as a sort of dismissive or a derogatory. But I think it's actually quite quite beautiful uh, seeing people who may not necessarily practice on a daily basis, but see this month as unique, and so they try to kind of rekindle things. Um, others who practice normally throughout the year uh, find Ramadan as a, as a period of kind of more intense spiritual activity. And there's plenty of others that don't necessarily celebrate Ramadan religiously, but they do celebrate it culturally. They enjoy the camaraderie, and they sure as heck enjoy the food. Uh, anyone who grew up Muslim can tell you that Ramadan uh, is kind of all sorts of exciting for young Muslims in particular uh, because it, it meant that iftar, that is the breaking of the fast, would bring all sorts of special foods that you only saw during Ramadan. Big meals with your family and late nights enjoying one another's company. You would have people that you didn't normally see would suddenly be at your house all the time. You were Your house was never empty. I mean, I remember my family... Is my family was semi semi devout themselves, um, but Ramadan was a very important month for my family. I remember that like the entire month, which usually came around either the beginning of the school year or during summer, uh, because it moves based on the lunar calendar every year, was always filled with relatives. You could come home and open the door, and your grandma was there, and your cousins were there, and your uncles were there. I mean, our iftars were quite big. Um, at one point, our backyard just became the place where we all f opened our fast we would just go to our backyard my mom would bring out dozens and dozen types of food and all the cousins would be there and they'd all eat um and and the, for those that follow along our sound operator diz here uh was always over during during the month of ramadan with his brothers and so it's kind of an interesting fascinating month um and also in addition it's like it, it's a month that doesn't just bring people but bring special foods like for afghans in particular have you ever noticed that my fellow afghans that we only make pakora during Ramadan. 
Pakora is this kind of fried potato. It's part of this kind of South Asian cuisine. In India, it's a it's a kind of stuffed fried pastry. But in Afghanistan, it's kind of a potato slice that has uh, dipped in some type of batter and then is fried. It's freaking delicious. Horribly greasy and probably filled with all sorts of calories. But we only eat it during Ramadan. And that was my biggest gripe. It's like, I love this stuff. I want to eat it all the time, not just during uh, Ramadan. Anyways, that's a, a kind of the funny anecdote about it. But let's actually talk about the history of Ramadan. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about a little bit about the theology. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the main practices so you know what Ramadan looks like. Uh, for those that are not familiar with it, we're going to talk about you know what are some of the main acts that Muslims perform. And then we're going to focus predominantly on, on the history and the kind of cultural aspect of it. Um, what do people practice during Ramadan? Ramadan has Ramadan remained the same always, or has Ramadan uh, changed? Is there uh, you know controversy regarding it? And the answer is actually yeah. Um, every year, especially in modern times, there's a debate on when Ramadan starts, uh, and there are those that argue that it starts one day, and the others that say no, it starts the next day. And there's this massive debate because uh, Islam runs on a lunar calendar, and the sighting of the moon is what determines when a month begins or ends. And it's the same thing with the end of Ramadan. I remember growing up, uh, my mom would make me, this is before the internet days, not too much before the internet days, but the, this was before the time that mosques would reveal stuff on the internet. You'd have to call into a mosque and call over and over again until they changed their uh, answering machine to say, oh, tomorrow is Eid, the end of Ramadan, or no, tomorrow it isn't, it's the next day. And this was always a big hassle if you had to go to school or you had to go to work. Um, with with the internet, it, some of it's been made easy, but there's still a massive debate over it. Someone quite famously on Twitter called it the Moon Wars. So we'll talk a little bit about the Moon Wars. Why is it that, that Muslims can't agree on, on it? We'll talk about all, all of that. So the theological justifications for Ramadan is actually found in the Quran itself. In Surah 2, Ayat 185, uh, it says, The month of Ramadan is that which was revealed the Qur'an, a guidance for all mankind, and clear proof of the guidance, and the criterion of what is right and what is wrong. And whomsoever of you is present, let him fast in the month, and whomsoever of you is sick or on a journey, uh, a number of other days they may fast. In other words, they're excused from the fast, they can make up for it, etc. Uh, Allah desires for you ease, meaning that the God has made fasting easy for you, that if there's complications, you don't have to worry about it. He desires not hardship for you, and that you should complete the period, and that you should magnify Allah for having guided you, and that perhaps you may be thankful to Him. And fasting, or saum, is one of the core practices found early on in Islam, along with salat, that is prayer, and zakat, that is almsgiving. So we see it in the Quran itself mentioned very clearly this is the month of Ramadan you should fast if you can't fast because you're traveling or you're sick it's okay you can make it up another day these three we often talk about the five pillars of, of Islam but in reality, it's actually three practices that are mentioned over and over again. And that is fasting, saum, 
salat, prayer, and zakat, and prayer and almsgivings. Um, eventually, we have a more cohesive five pillars, but that emerges a little bit uh, later. The five pillars develop kind of later in Muhammad's prophetic career. But we knew from the very start, from the very beginning, that fasting, prayer, and almsgiving was part of being a follower of Muhammad. Ramadan actually refers specifically to a month. It's the name of the ninth month in the Islamic calendar. And it is believed to be the month in which the Quran was revealed, as we as we mentioned in the verse that we recited, on a day that is known as Laylatul Qadr, that is the night of power. And the night of power is believed by Muslims to have been, there's not, an, uh, no one knows for sure which day it was specifically, but they believe it was one of the odd days in the last 10 days uh, of Ramadan. And it is referred referred to in chapter in Surah 97, Ayat 3, that the Laylatul Qadr is better than 1,000 months of normal worship. So it's believed to be a very, very sacred uh, day. Fasting during the month of Ramadan acknowledges the Quran and is done for God consciousness or what's called taqwa, that is to cultivate a sense of godliness. Like all the kind of five pillars of Islam uh, for the faithful, it comes down to kind of cultivating two relationships, the relationship with God and the relationship with your community, the sort of horizontal relationship and the vertical relationship, which is really at the core of what Islam is. Islam is about building, uh, or according to Muslims, Islam is about building that sort of God consciousness and also building a sort of just community, a socially uh, just community. And so fasting is about uh, solidarity with with uh, those that are less fortunate, but also an attempt to alleviate. It's not just about feeling, you know, solidarity with with the poor and the hungry, but alleviating the the hunger and the poverty of the poor. It's why you are encouraged to invite people to iftars to dinners. You're encouraged to feed the hungry. You're encouraged to give charity, etc. It's really about trying to build the community, a kind of solidarity. Uh, there now, historically speaking, and this is this is important. Fasting during Ramadan may have predated Islam. Like many of the kind of five pillars, it's probably an older practice that is drawn into Islam and given new meaning and new significance within the context of of Muhammad's uh, prophetic mission, if you will. A lot of the evidence that we can look at uh, suggests that the Hanifs, that is the Arab monotheists, and if you're interested in who they are, you can listen to the season one of Ed on History. We talked about the Hanifs as the kind of context in which Islam emerges, the religious context in which uh, Islam emerges. But it was likely that the Hanifs uh, fasted during the month of Ramadan. Muhammad himself likely was fasting when he retired to the mountain uh, Jabal al-Nur where he had his, his kind of religious experience and the revelation of the Quran. There's also evidence by certain scholars that looking at the, some of the liturgy and the texts of uh, Eastern Christians, that the Medeans, Mandeans and the Eastern Christians may have also participated in the fast. And so fasting during Ramadan might have been uh, out there and kind of brought into Islam as, a, as part of the core of Islamic practices. But culturally and socially, it was already in Arabia and the month of Ramadan was seen as uh, kind of associated with the, the concept of fast. And there was other people who had fasted, though they may not have been during the month of Ramadan. We know that Christians fasted. We know Jews fasted in Arabia. We even know that uh, pagans 
uh, fasted. Some of the polytheists of, of Mecca would fast during the 10th of Muharram um, as, a, as a way of dealing with drought and, and appeasing the kind of desert gods. Uh, so the fasting was already there, but it's brought into the fabric of Islam. The, the Quran and the Hadiths themselves are actually very conscious that fasting existed, and they note that God had, had made obl uh, fasting obligatory in the past uh, for others, for other sort of nations, so to speak, and that even the Gospel and the Torah were believed to have been revealed back in the day during Ramadan. Now, this is an interesting kind of uh, attempt to look at the Torah and the Gospels through an Islamic lens. It's a very uh, fascinating, uh, conscious and deliberate kind of literary device or formulation that places Islam within a sort of body of religious practices or, or within the family of a religious tradition. So while it was common that there was fasting uh, and that Muhammad himself may have fasting, it was actually declared an obligatory practice for Muslims after the Hijra, that is the migration. And again, you can go to the season one to hear more about the migration. So likely it was 623-624 CE in which fasting was declared as, no, this is something that Muslims should do. In this context, what we're seeing is that uh, Muslims are migrating from Mecca to Medina to build a faith-based community. They're driven out of Mecca. They come to this new city known as Yathrib that eventually becomes known as Medina, and they're building a community of believers that is a new tribe based not on blood, but based on faith. So in other words, Ramadan as a sort of obligatory religious practice deliberately constructs Muslim identity and is community forming. It's basically a, a signifier. It goes, we are one tribe, we are one people. It answers the question of who are the Muslims. It says, we are one people, one tribe, bound not by blood, but by faith. We are the Muslims, those people who fast, who pray, who give alms, and who live in Medina. So there's a context for which fasting becomes obligatory. Um, there is the theological justification for it, that is the celebration of the, uh, the Quran or the recognition of the Quran, the building of God consciousness, and the, and the kind of building of a horizontal relationship with your fellow co-religionists. But there's also historical context for it, that there's a very deliberately part of identity formation, that Muslims are no longer those people who came from Mecca, but they are a faith-based community, and you can notice them by a series of acts, signifiers. We find this is common in all religions, right? In Christianity, the, how Christianity develops, Judaism, how Judaism develops in late antiquity. There's a fantastic book, I think it's by uh, Boyard, and, uh, called Borderlines, The Partitioning of Judeo-Christianity, that talks exactly about this, about how there's a, the religious practice was used as a signifier to mark which community you were a part of. And so we see this in Islam as well, that the three core practices of fasting and prayer and almsgiving became signifiers to demonstrate who is a Muslim, right? To mark that these are the Muslims. Uh, this early adoption of Ramadan makes it not only a core practice, practice, but also explains why it remains such an important feature of Muslim life. And as a signifier of identity, it still remains. Muslims are those people who fast during Ramadan. It's why even uh, people who may 
may not practice the religion throughout the year find themselves attempting to practice it during the month of Ramadan because it becomes one of those core kind of signifiers uh, of who you are. Now, religiously speaking and culturally speaking, Ramadan is associated with a set of practices, not just fasting. It's not just um, before you fast, you actually have something known as the suhoor, uh, also known as sari amongst uh, Afghans, or the, per the Farsi-speaking world, Persian-speaking world. Suhoor is a pre-dawn meal. Uh, many Muslims would wake up before your, the morning prayers, what are known as the fajr prayers, and they enjoy a meal before the coming day. Fasting itself begins at sunrise. Fasting means abstaining from eating, drinking, but also uh, exercising self-discipline, so no smoking no sex, etc. Now, funny enough, I remember my friends uh, when I was younger would always boggle at that last one. You know, it was always water and no sex that tripped them out. They'd be like, dude, no water? How could you survive? Oh, man, I couldn't do that. I couldn't survive without water. Um, or, and then, of course, when they heard no sex during sunrise, sunset, they'd be like, what? Oh, hell no. You guys are great. Could you have sex after sunset? Like, they were very keenly obsessed with this idea that you would abstain from sex from sunrise to sunset. They're like, really? So what about when the sun sets? Can you guys, can you have sex? And you're like, yeah, you can have sex when the sun sets. You're just abstaining from, from all of that type of stuff from sunrise to, to sunset. It's about, you know, self-discipline and, and, and self-control. They, they would just trip out endlessly. But they loved the idea of iftar, and they love the idea of suhoor. So suhoor, as I mentioned, was that pre-dawn meal. Not everyone does suhoor. Uh, some people find that it's hard to wake up for suhoor, and some people say that it just it, get, it makes them even hungrier. But suhoor was a way to alleviate or make the fasting easier. At least that's the kind of rationale for it. And it's, again, a community-building um, exercise. You wake up as a family. Uh, you harass the people that can't wake up. You knock on their door until they do wake up. Um, and in many cultures around the world, uh, you would find that there would be people who helped others wake up for suhoor. So in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is in the news right now, um, and, and there's all sorts of violence going on and, and, and whatnot. For those that are interested, I did a special episode on Jerusalem last season. Go and check that out. But Jerusalem is a prime example of this. In Jerusalem, there a local Christian would actually wake up and use a drum to help wake up Muslims for the pre-dawn meal. He would go around and beat his drum and w tell the Muslims to wake up so that they could wake up for suhoor. Isn't that such a beautiful kind of practice? It again, shows the kind of way in which these religions lived alongside one another in coexistence. And really a kind of, uh, a kind of testimony of, of that uh, pushes back, I think, against some of the narratives we're seeing right now. Um, and it's the same thing in Egypt, right? And there were people who either used drums or they used trumpets. They would wake Muslims up. People who were not Muslim, usually Christians and Jews, would wake up their Muslim neighbors to help them, to remind them, make sure you have suhoor, make sure you have your pre-dawn meal. And then, of course, uh, uh, Fajr would be announced through the... Uh, uh, muazin, the the adam, the call to to prayer.
Fasting would happen from that moment on until sunset. And sunset, it would end with something known as iftar. This would be the next practice. So you have suhoor and you have iftar. Suhoor was the meal before fasting. Iftar is the meal that breaks the fast. What Muslims normally do is they usually break the fast, have iftar as a sort of small food, usually an appetizer, some type of snack. Most commonly among around the world, it's dates. Uh, and that is because it's purported in Sahih Bukhari, that is one of the hadiths, that Muhammad opened his fast or broke his fast with uh, three dates. And then after you break your fast, the, you go and you pray Maghrib prayers, that is the sunset prayers, and then you return for the main meal. Now, this is usually some type of big feast. And the meal is communal. It's not, you're not opening your fast by yourself. You're meant to open your fast with your fellow Muslims. You go to a mosque and you open it with them. You go with your family. And this is the time where like extended families show up. Think of it like Thanksgiving dinner, but every night for 30 days. Right, that's how the, the the closest I can compare it to, big meals, seasonal meals, meals with friends and family, and everyone coming together, and also people make a very concerted effort to invite one another. It's believed to be an act of of piety or charity to invite someone else for a meal during Ramadan. This community time is filled with revelry and celebration because Muslims have been fasting from sunrise to sunset, so they're usually pretty lethargic throughout the day, but then night comes around, they've had this big meal, and yeah, they have, they have the itis, right? When you eat too much, you get a little bit of the itis, but then it becomes celebration. You, you drink uh, tea, and you eat fruits, and you hang out until into the wee hours of, of the night. And then afterwards, many Muslims break for what are known as the tarahweh prayers. These are sort of nightly prayers. Now, while Muhammad himself observed the Tarawih prayers, he was worried that many would be make it obligatory. And so he said that this was they were not obligatory. Unlike the fasting, which is obligatory, the nightly prayers are kind of like extra. They're known as sunnah, that is stuff that you can do in order to better cultivate um, yourself living as Muhammad did, as piously as Muhammad did. Um, but it wasn't actually insta reinstated um, until Khalif Umar. So after Muhammad's death is when Taraweh prayers really took off, not during uh, his his actual lifetime. There were prayers, but not the type of Taraweh we see uh nowadays. And it's Khalif Umar that, that actually institutes them after Muhammad's death. Now, 12 Shiism don't always practice Taraweh prayers, and some see it as a sort of later innovation because it is reinstituted really by, by Khalif Umar. They see it as, as, as what's known as Beda, as an innovation. Some do practice Taraweh because a lot of the kind of religious and cultural practices of Sunni and Shia overlap with one another, um, and some do not. So there's a little bit of difference here. But what is all it is clear is that the nights are spent in some type of reflection. So after the revelry, even if you're not doing taraweh prayers, many people will do some type of zikr, that is, uh, remembrance of God. So this would be recitations of certain prayers. This would be the recitation of certain names of God. Many people will endeavor to complete the khatam, the Quran, to complete the Quran. And so they will dedicate to reading certain segments of the Quran every day 
wait until they've completed it within the 30 days. These are all very common practices. So the completing of the Quran, certain type of nightly prayers, meditative practices. And then finally, and most and kind of corely, it is tied to charity. Two types of charity. Zakat, that is the kind of obligatory almsgiving in which you give a percentage of your annual income to the poor and sadaqah that is charity that you give to the poor um, in fact there later on by the time of the umayyads in in the late 7th century the emergence of the religious scholars and the beginnings of these uh al-Hadith, the experts in Hadith, they came up with the they they came up with the formulation. They said, "Well, what happens if you can't fast? If you're traveling, or if you're sick, or if you're too elderly, or whatnot?" Remember that very first verse I recited to you said that, "Look, if you can't fast, we've made it easy for you. This is not meant to be a hardship." And so those Hadiths uh, were used to justify a sort of alternative to fasting and sadaqah, that is, giving to charity, becomes a very becomes the key to do. Them. You can either make up fasts later on, that is fast when you are able to, or you can feed a hungry person. And it is encouraged that you feed the poor and the hungry um, in order to uh, make up any sort of fast. So the month of Ramadan isn't just about these kind of disciplinary practices of restricting yourself from food and water. It's also about the community practices, getting up for a pre-dawn meal, uh, breaking your fast as a community, and giving to the poor. It is a period in which a lot of money is given. The poor are fed. The poor uh, always find some type of food. They can find most mosques put on uh, food lines and will, will give community iftars so that anyone uh, anyone who's experiencing any type of food insecurity can experience it. and so there's this kind of other community based aspect to it and it starts with the end uh, it's really early on during the career of muhammad but it's by the time of the Rashidun and the Umayyads in which many of these practices are formalized so that many people unofficially already gave a lot to charity and it was already encouraged at the time of Muhammad that you should be giving to charity. But by the time of the Umayyads, it became the kind of theological just uh, mechanism to replace fasting if you couldn't fast. So there became a sort of theological attempt to rationalize or work out the process uh, so to speak, and formalize it. And that formalization happens in the mid to late 7th century after Muhammad's death. And it is done so because it is a period in which the Muslim community has expanded beyond Arabia and has now encountered a level of wealth, has encountered uh, higher levels of poverty and wealth inequality, uh, whereas the Muhammad's uh, community was much more egalitarian. The poor were taken care of and the hungry were taken care of. The mosque acted as an institute that dealt with it, and the zakat, uh, the giving of the alms, was an, was officially by the Rashidun about supporting the, the poor and the hungry. By the time you have a hierarchy established in the Umayyad dynasty, in which you have an actual dynasty that, that is in charge, and you now have a social structure in which Muslims are encountering big cities and big cities with massive populations of non-Muslims and poor, and slaves, etc., 
you needed to formalize a lot of the practices of charity giving and, and, and alms giving and fasting. And so the rule, kind of some of the rules, if you say, if you will, or the regulations about fasting and some of the regulations about charity of whom you should give it to, you should be feeding the hungry, etc., come about during this time period. So there is a context to, to why it becomes formalized, and it is because there is a social structure that emerges in it, an encounter with real systemic inequality in an attempt to redress that systemic equality to fix it going you know we can't we can't have homeless people we can't have poor people we can't have widows and so there was a formalization of saying this is how we will endeavor to take care of these people and ramadan became the month in which that was intensified while throughout the year those activities were encouraged and formalized in uh, religious uh, structures in addition to kind of the religious practices that I mentioned, there are also cultural practices that are uniquely associated with Ramadan. And this speaks to how Islam spread. As Islam spread throughout the region, the Middle East, South Asia, Southeast Asia, etc., it didn't just impose a set of religious practices, but incorporated cultural practices into itself. So, for example, uh, in Egypt, Ramadan is marked by the kind of famous Ramadan lanterns, these beautiful, colorful lanterns that you could see in Cairo that just light up the night. Um, and this comes from, from 969 uh, in, during the Fatimid Caliphate, in which Khalif al-Mu'az al-Adin Allah uh, came out at night to speak to people and people held up lanterns to see him. And from then on, this kind of 10th century, this this cultural practice of in order to see the Khalif al-Muiz al um, became a common cultural feature of Egyptian experience of Ramadan. Now when you go to Cairo, you can see these kind of beautiful lanterns lighting up the the, the night sky. Um, in the city of, of Semarang, uh, the beginning of, of Ramadan is marked by a carnival, a carnival known as the Dugderan, which involves the parading of the Warak Negdog, or Negdong, I think, I'm probably mispronouncing it, which is a kind of uh, a, a, a papered uh, display, a kind of a miniature or a sculpture of a horse kind of dragon hybrid creature that is allegedly inspired by Burak, which is the, the Muslim uh, creature that, that is associated with the night journey of Muhammad, the Asra and the Miraj. But the reality is that the this kind of creature, the Warak Nendong or Nagdong, is actually an indigenous animal or an indigenous mythological creature to Semarang. And so you see this kind of indigeneity being incorporated, the indigenous practices being in, in local practices being incorporated into Islam in this festival known as Dugdaran. That's uh, one example. Another interesting one is one that is practiced in the Gulf states, in the Arab Gulf states, particularly in Kuwait, uh, UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, known as Garangao. Uh, and with this Garangao comes from Garang, it means uh, clanking together or knocking together. It's a sound when things knock together. And it's a festival that is celebrated on the 14th day of Ramadan as a way of saying, hey, we made it halfway 
way through and it is celebrated for children children get dressed up in these beautiful colorful robes they carry a bag around their neck and they go around in small groups in the neighborhood they sing folk songs and special and play special music and they knock on the door of their neighbors and the neighbors give them candy and nuts and sweets and treats it's kind of in, in some ways it's a little bit like halloween except you're not dressing up as a monster or a creature you're dressing up in kind of folk robes and you're celebrating that hey we made it halfway through ramadan it's a kids uh celebration grangao and it's done in the arab gulf countries uh cultural practice um that is adopted and you know makes kind of ramadan uh fun and i already mentioned of course the ramadan drummer uh, known as the misharati the misharati is the one who means the the one who calls uh, to pre-dawn, right, or the caller, the person, the mesarati is the person who who calls people for the suhur meal. There, are, it's also occasionally known as uh, al tabail, meaning literally the drummer. Um, and this person would go around and they would chant, "O oh, servants of Allah, believe in the oneness of Allah. Wake up and pray to Allah, the Sustainer." Um, and it, the tradition actually started um, in again in Egypt and with. Uh, Utbat bin Ishaq, who was the governor of Egypt, and he was considered to be the first Misharati in, in kind of history. And he walked around the streets of Cairo to remind people of uh, the suhoor. And this was uh, done mostly because he needed to wake up the military. Um, event, uh, from then, he was the governor. From then, it was associated with all sorts of people. Sometimes the Misharati is a Muslim, but more often than not, it's not a Muslim in Jerusalem. Uh, it's usually a Christian that goes around and they dress up in traditional garb uh, and they go around and they beat the drum and they call out, O servants of Allah, believe in the oneness of Allah, wake up and pray to Allah the sustainer in order to remind people, hey, suhoor has come, go and, and, and you know, eat your pre-dawn meal. Uh, in each in Syria, the, the Mesharati actually whistles. He whistles in order to wake people up. And then in Egypt, uh, they drum for most part. But in 1859, they introduced cannons, more kind of official. And this was, again, because they needed to wake up the military so that they could have their, their kind of pre-dawn meals. But you find it throughout the region, drumming, whistling, even the clanging of cymbals together in order to wake people up or just uh, calling out the Mesarati would, would awaken, uh, Mesaharati would wake up people um, in order to uh, that they could enjoy the pre-dawn suhoor. There's also certain kind of foods that are uniquely associated within Central Asia and South Asia from about Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, that kind of region. You have something known as halim. Halim is this kind of ground-down mix of grain and protein, usually some form of oil, chicken, barley, wheat, and it's ground down finely, and it is eaten. This halim is, uh, and there's kind of different recipes for it. This well, I gave a very rudimentary kind of base of it, but halim is, and it is actually an indigenous cultural dish that has existed in the region predating Islam, but it becomes associated with Ramadan. And so you see that Ramadan has a set of kind of religious practices 
that emerge quite early on uh, in during Muhammad's lifetime, that, that it becomes so important that it becomes one of the three core tenets of Islam. And this is evidenced in, even in the hadiths. Um, there's a very famous uh, Bukhari hadith uh, on fasting and narrated by Talha bin Ubaidullah, in which he says, a Bedouin with unkept hair came to the messenger of said, O oh, messenger of God, inform me what God has made compulsory for me in regards to prayers. The messenger of God replied, you have to offer perfectly the five compulsory prayers in a day and night, unless you want to pray the nafal, which is extra prayers. The Bedouin further asked, inform me, Allah, what has been made a compulsory to me in regards to fasting. And the messenger of Allah replied, you have to fast during the whole month of Ramadan unless you want to fast asked more as nafil that is again the uh, the uh, extra prayer extra fasting if you will and the bedouin further asked tell me uh, o messenger of allah how much zakat has god enjoined upon me thus uh, god's messenger muhammad informed him about all the rules and fundamentals of islam so even the hadith we see very clearly that the kind of fasting almsgiving and prayer are the core of Islam, eventually they're expanded to the five pillars to include Hajj and Zakat, uh, Hajj and Shahada the Hajj was not originally included because Mecca uh, had banned and expelled the Muslims the Muslims had left it to Medina so it was a very Medinan experience that these three core practices was a part of the context of the Hijra that that was the religious justification for it and that some of these practices then evolved in, by the time of Khalif Omar uh, it included the Taraweh prayers. And in the time of the Umayyads, many of the practices and the religious practices were formalized. They were given theological justifications. They were uh, explained through the hadiths and through a kind of a d detailed citation done by the Ahli al-Hadith, the emer these emerging scholars of hadith. They were formalized into practices. But that it also, in addition to religious practices, included the cultural practices like some of the ones that, that I mentioned. So Ramadan is a kind of a big, complex uh, experience for, for Muslims that involved cultural practices, religious practices, but it has its own unique history. And part of the experience of Ramadan in, in more contemporary times is the debate over when Ramadan starts, what I jokingly referred to as the Moon Wars. It's actually someone on Twitter that called it the, the Moon Wars, and very rightly so. And this really uh, is with the advent of astronomical calculations, with the ability to to, to use computers to accurately determine uh, astronomical 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 there we go that's the word i was looking for clearly it's been a long day uh the the phenomenon right of sighting the moon and so there's this debate that has emerged between those who use these calculations to pinpoint the exact sighting of the crescent moon so that it's scientific and those that are more traditional that say no every region has to sight the moon with their own eyes now these debates people muslims often really get frustrated with why these debates happen but there's a reason for it, right? Firstly, um, I think the calculations uh, done, scientific calculations, are not just done vis-a-vis -vis science, but also as a result of sort of capitalism. If you're working, 
right? You need to know if you're, I mean, this is a very different type of job experience than they would have had in the pre-modern world. The modern world, you have a set schedule. You need to know when Ramadan starts so that you can accommodate it within your schedule um, or whatnot. Same with Eid, right? When Ramadan ends, the Eid, which is the celebratory prayer that I'll, uh, festival, which I'll talk about in a different episode, um, is, uh, you know, you need to know it in order to accommodate it. So capitalism plays a big role in why there's this argument over science, scientific observation and calculation versus observation with the eye. And then the observation with the eye is about tradition, right? It's about the about being able to cite things with the eye. It is within the sunnah, that is the, the body of literature about Muhammad, that it states that you should view it through your eyes. Now, some people think that this is a, a problem, that in many ways that this uh, uh, represents... Um, you know, a division within the, the 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 Muslim community. But the reality is that it just, even though this has a u- uniquely modern tone to it, that there has always been disagreement. And it, the reason why this disagreement is allowed is because Islam has a, a very kind of diverse component to it in that it allows religious scholarly disagreement. Uh, while we talked about last episode the kind of formation of orthodoxy, that is a kind of core set of beliefs and practices um, that, take centuries to really develop in, in Islam. Check out last season for that. There's still a flexibility to Islam that we don't often see in, in other orthodox kind of debates. And this flexibility is epitomized by this concept known as ikhtilaf. Ikhtilaf means that there is, there is going to be disagreement. But that disagreement is okay. That if there is a disagreement on on a situation, you are not allowed to condemn a person that has a different opinion than your own. That that diversity of belief and diversity of experience and diversity of opinion is a good thing. So these moon wars, as annoying as they can be, as frustrating as they can be, and every year someone goes, why can't we figure this out? It's actually come part and parcel of the kind of flexibility within Islam that emerges from about the 7th century to the 11th century. This kind of debate within the community as it begins to form its orthodoxy, as it starts to shift uh, into a scholarly tradition of, of debate and discourse and discussion of citation and hadith and Quran, as this body of literature emerges, it also adopts diversity and dynamism within that tradition through ikhtilaf. And so there is a history of disagreement, and there's always going to be disagreement. And this disagreement means that there's going to be disagreements between the madhabs, the religious schools, rules of Islam, but also between the kind of groups, Sunni, Shia, etc., that that disagreement is not meant to be a bad thing. That disagreement is a good thing. It only becomes a bad thing when you weaponize that difference. When it goes, you believe differently than me, you act differently than me, you think differently than me, you're wrong. If the calculation school says those who cite with their eye, they're wrong, and the people who cite with their eye say the calculation people are wrong, then they're kind of missing the, the kind of historical spirit of ikhtilaf. So I, I wanted to kind of really bring that up to kind of highlight that the moon wars, while clearly have a very modern bent to them, or not a new thing. That disagreement has always existed, and that the key to under- and that it is part and parcel within Islam itself, which is a very dynamic religion that that allows a great deal of diversity. We often talk about Islam as orthodoxy and consensus, but in reality, there is this notion that there's always going to be disagreements because Islam is rooted not in a hierarchy, a religious hierarchy, but in scholarly debate. 
and that is okay. And I'm going to end the podcast there with uh, uh, that claim. Hopefully that that was a, a kind of interesting take on the Moon Wars and helps you understand a little bit about what's going on. Hopefully you'll also see um, the history of Ramadan here and and why uh, it is, uh, you know, practiced the way it is, how it developed over years. I am going to leave you with a book recommendation uh, this week. Uh, it is a fantastic book. It's actually a translation. It's written by Al-Qadi Al-Numan and it's translated by a guy named Devin uh, Stewart and it's called The Disagreement of the Jurists. It is a fantastic book that really talks about how scholarly traditions differ over time and really kind of talks about the ikhtilaf, ikhtilaf that I mentioned and really will help put, contextualize the history of the kind of the so-called moon wars as I kind of jokingly have referred to them. But I uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, for those of you that are celebrating uh, Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak, Ramadan Kareem, for those of you that are not, hopefully this was uh, an informative podcast and now you know a little bit more about why Muslims practice what they do, what they do, and also the history of it. Um, let me know what your thoughts are. You can always hit me up on social media, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can also follow me there to see all the kind of fun stuff uh, that I do and get to behind the scenes. All right, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds.